Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is The Wall Street Journal, Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. So Secrets is working from home because of the coronavirus. I know many of you are going through the same thing and are worried about how all of this is going to impact your life. It's a tough time for everyone. We know you have a lot of concerns, from how to work alone or manage your career and your kids from your living room, or how to prepare financially for a layoff. So we've set up a hotline for your questions, and we'll try to answer them. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 314-200-5947. In light of all that's going on, we thought you might need some real inspiration. And so we wanted to revisit one of the episodes from last year that really inspired us, our conversation with Wendy Newen. Wendy is a lifelong entrepreneur. About a decade ago, she became one of the first fashion style bloggers and influencers. Her YouTube channel, Wendy's Lookbook, has over 600,000 subscribers, and she has more than 1 million Instagram followers. Last year, she took her business savvy in a new direction and opened a store selling CBD products in New York City. Wendy is a great entrepreneur, but she's also a survivor of abuse. Just to let you know, she will be talking about that in this episode in case it's triggering for you. Her message of resilience, hope, and making things work despite the odds gave me hope. I hope it inspires you in these very challenging times we are living through today. So Wendy, when you were 15, you left home with your belongings in a trash can and you moved to a group home. What do you tell us about that? Yeah, that experience uh, was a little traumatic, um, just thinking back. But um, when I knew that I needed to leave home, I called the only person that I thought I couldn't get help from, which was actually um, a teacher. And um, when she came to pick me up, when she removed me, I didn't realize I was being removed from home. I thought I was just going to stay at her house for a little bit and then come back home afterwards. Um, But because she's a teacher, she reported to social services. And then from there, they actually took me and placed me in a group home. I was in the group home for about six weeks and four days and then was placed in a foster home afterwards. And what prompted the move to that group home? Yeah, I was living with my biological family. Um, We moved to the States when I was eight years old. And uh, we grew up very, very poor. So we was part of the sweatshop um, era. You know, we sewed at home a lot. I grew up just folding um, collars. So every, every intersection of your clothing piece needs to be manually flipped. There were piles and piles of clothes and just flipping the corners so then my parents can sew in the straight lines of a shirt or whatever it mm. is. Um, and they got paid, you know, a few dollars for each shirt that they finished sewing. So growing up, With that, um, they just needed a lot more financial help. So we had an extra room um, in the little apartment that we were staying, and they ended up um, offering that room to one of my cousins to live and therefore paying the rent to help with everything else too. And I think from there, I was 12, and he was 24, and it just started the the sexual abuse from there. Um, And then I was abused from 12 to 14, and then at 14, um, he moved out, and another cousin moved in. And the abuse happened again from 14 to about 15 and a half. So I was taken out at 15 and a half for that. Your parents didn't necessarily believe what you were saying about your cousins, though. So how right. did you get the courage to speak out and ultimately move out if they didn't back you up? 
thinking back, I don't think I had the mental awareness at that age to do what I did. I think it was just a combination of I can't explain it to you. Like everything that happened, happened because I felt like there was a bigger, just a guidance and a bigger force outside of me. You know, making that call to the teacher was the only thing I knew. From that call led to the placement, and from that placement opened the criminal, basically charges against my two cousins. And from that, I just, I kind of just moved along as it was happening. Thinking back, I don't think I had enough awareness to know what was happening. I just knew it was the right thing to do, and that sense of, I know, justice or rightness led me forward to whatever path that was supposed to be. So that basically led me to the foster care side, and then from there, I met three incredible women. Um, my I consider them like my three angels, but uh, my DA was incredible. Just this strong-willed woman that didn't want anything to happen to me. And she also told me later on that there's not that many women that will go through to the rest of the trial process. It's usually the family will interfere and then they'll just stop doing it. Mm. So I was one of the few that actually finished. Uh, my investigator, this tall, blonde, just beautiful woman that just like did not give any, you know, she was just my guardian the whole time. Um, and then I had my of witness, a victim witness expert that was always, always with me. So these three women just kind of guide me throughout the way. And they, I think, made me believe that you can be a very strong woman in a space that is very dominated by other forces. Mm -hmm. thing. So I was very blessed to be introduced to that type of warrior at the very beginning of my days. Well, you must be a warrior yourself. <laughs> I'm a survivor, yes. <laughs> what advice would you give to other women who are thinking about sharing their survivor story? You know, I think there is, I don't think that there's necessarily a timeline or there's the right place or time to do it. It's whatever you feel most comfortable. It has to be the right time for you, whether that's created because of environmental pressures, whether that's created because time and space made you had to do it. Um, but whatever that is, is that you have to, it has to be on your terms and it has to be on your time. So despite all this, you put yourself through UC Berkeley. How did you do that? More things I can't explain. Um, but I remember I didn't shoot for higher education for um, the determination of like, you know, excelling in school. I wanted to go because I needed housing. Place to live, yeah. So I said, okay, well, these dormitories, I think I can apply to them and I can have a place to live. And that's all it was. And I, so I applied to every UC school there was. Because I was awarded the court, um, my admissions fees were waived. Um, and the only one that I got into was UC Berkeley. Um, Berkeley is the only semester school in the whole UC program. Their first day of school is usually at the end of August. Every other school was the end of September. My birthday is August 28th. Um, and Berkeley's first day of school that year was August 28th. Wow. Yeah, so I took everything incredible. in a trash bag. And went to Cal and never like looked back. It's my rebirth. It was the Bay Area. <laughs> you are one of the most, or probably the most, successful fashion YouTubers out there. Um, how did you build an audience? You know, um, I was one of the first, to be honest with you. I was at um, a bank doing uh, business banking, and I remember, you know, doing all of this with my clients. They were saying, you. Know, Usually it takes three years for a business to take off. And because of that, because knowing that, having that expectation really shaped me and how I shaped my business. Because I think if you thought, I need to be big tomorrow, your decision-making is not, I think, as long-term, right? Mm -hmm. It's very short-term. But for me, all of my decisions were very long-term decisions going into the blogging space. Um, at banking, I love my job. I mean, I 
actually loved my clients, did not like my job too much. <laughs> um, and, and I just basically quit and I started um, taking a whole bunch of creative classes. And in the end, I fell in love with video the most. And the best form of video at the time um, with, when it comes to a shared community was YouTube, right? Um, that was a time of, um, what is it, uh, reality television. Mm -hmm. um, and you were breaking through to the camera and talking straight to your audience. That was something that was very novel back then. Mm. And when I was watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos back then, there's not that many of us, you know, almost you know, back then, and that was again about 10 years ago. Um, and there was not that many people in the, in the fashion space. Um, dedicated fashion. I think there were a lot of people that were doing uh, makeup tutorials that would share what they were wearing, but there was not like a dedicated fashion tutorial channel. And I've always loved fashion all my life. And I said, you know, let's make something. And again, thinking about long term, I wanted to make a show concept. I didn't just wanted to do like, I wanted to share something I'm wearing. I wanted to figure out a way to add value to the videos that we were creating. Um, so my film partner and I at the time created a show called Pairings. What we did was that we took a simple shirt like the one I'm wearing today or anything um, and we would style it three different ways, in very different ways. We'll make the shirt into a normal shirt and then we'll make the shirt into maybe a dress-looking item. We'll make the shirt into something that's a little bit different. And that show format basically became the foundation of our channel. And then about five videos into that, um, I love scarves. Growing up in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. you know, it was always cold. So I wanted to do these different scarf wears at the time. I think there was a video that was had like seven different ways to wear seven different ways to wear a scarf. And I said, I think I can do a little bit more than that. And he said, Can you do fifty? And I said, No, but I can do twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we made twenty-five ways to wear a scarf, and that went viral. Um, that video has traveled to more countries than I've had. Honestly, it just went viral overnight. So it just jumped our subscription rate to something that we could We thought that our Gmail was broken because we it just it came in so fast in that sense. Incredible. And that launched my career on YouTube and also on the blogging side. Coming up, Wendy Nguyen discusses the hype surrounding CBD and why she thinks it's the hottest new business prospect. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. us a snapshot of how your business works. So for example, a brand comes to you and says, Wendy, we'd love for you to showcase our shoes. Right. Then what happens? Yeah. So I usually would say, can you please show, share with me your campaign ideas or what, what you're looking for me to do? And most importantly, what the shoes look like. Because I think if the items do not match my own brand, it doesn't feel authentic to my audience. And I think audiences are extremely smart and they know when you're promoting something that's not authentically what you would use. Mm. And m my relationship with my audience, it's very personal, right? So I have to make sure that I'm really advocating for clothing items or fashion items that are, are authentic. Um, if it's something that, honestly, I don't see myself wearing or don't see myself really, that's not a part of kind of my life, I 
would say no. And I actually say no more than I say yes mm. most of the time. If there's something that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, great price point, or you know, great item, or you know, great ingredients, whatever it is, um, then I work very closely with the brand to develop a full campaign on the channel or on the blog or on an image or anything like that. Yeah. And then do some people pay you for how many shoes or whatever are sold based on what they see on your website? Yeah, so it really depends on the relationship and the structure of the campaign. Uh, most of them is just paid by, they view us kind of similar to how they view advertisement. So when they're paying for an ad on, uh, you know, in, in a magazine or a newspaper, they're just paying for the slot in the magazine or newspaper or whatever it is. So in a sense, they're paying a slot on our blog, or they're paying a slot on our video. Um, there are some relationships that are very long-term that can be shared in that sense, revenue shared mm. for whatever item sold or whatever it is. But that's up to the brand more than anything else, if they're willing to do a, a type of relationship like that, or are they just paying for advertisement slots more than anything? What would you say to a woman who wants to do what you do? Yeah, you gotta just do it. You know, don't rush it. You have to give you Doing it 10 years ago, honestly, was a lot easier than doing it now, right? Because when we first started, there was not that many bloggers. There was just a handful of us, really. Every There's a blogger at every corner, you know? And mm -hmm. that's just the, the world that we live in now. And now there's, I think, a class at a university for blogging yeah. now, right? So it's story, really, yeah. really a, a huge um, industry now, you know? Um, so if you wanted to do it, I think my biggest advice is, what is your added value? I, I, I ask that to every, every time I speak um, at a, a panel or a conference, whatever it is. I always say, you know, what is your added value? What are you bringing to the table in addition to the outfits you're wearing? What is that? I don't know what that is. You know, whatever that is for you, that has to be very apparent when you're sharing it online. And also, I always advise, develop three words that anchors your brand, whatever that is. You know, for us, it's philanthropy, creativity, and quality. Anything that we do has to, two of those pillars has to be met. You know, so it's either creativity and quality, or it has to have a mission-driven with a with a creative campaign or whatever it is. But developing those three core principles will help guide you through your whole process. So you're not just kind of navigating as the waters going hard. You know, you have to make sure that you're steering straight. And I think that would really ground you in that sense. What do you say to people who say, oh, your job looks easy. You're traveling yeah. the world, wearing yeah. great clothes, going to parties. <laughs> yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I think it, it is easy in a sense. You know, like I have, I have the dream job and I know that. I'm very lucky. We try very hard to make it look easy. But it is hard in a sense. You are running your own business. You're managing your finances. You're understanding the expenses that comes out of it and what images produce the best engagement. So you function like a small army of one in regards to the business side. But yes, it is one of the best jobs in the world. I think the harder part is just growing the brand. You know, I think what we do is very similar to the entertainment world where we do have a shelf life, right? Mm. I think every blogger, um, if they don't believe it, they're, they're going to feel it, you know, later on. So there is a shelf life to our brand, right? And the stress is when we feel like the shelf life is running out. Yes, um, for me, I knew there was a shelf life coming in. I, I never thought I was going to do this forever. I was just so thankful that I was able to do it for 10 years. I'm still doing it now. I'm even more thankful that I can do it now. But given that I know there is a quote-unquote expiration date, I work extremely hard to make sure that I'm always on top of every social media platform that's coming out, to make sure that our content is evolving with the particular tastes of the time. Um, but to also have mission-driven content that feels like we are still connected as a community, 
you know. But all of that requires planning, strategy, and just growth. And that's the business side. I think that's very difficult. So you just opened a CBD store in Manhattan. Yes, yes. And I think you're the only female and minority-owned yes. store in New York State that's done that. Yes. And you said you've learned different things about running that sort of business. So yes. what are some differences about running a CBD business versus running Wendy's Lookbook? Yes. Completely different. Yes. <laughs> um, in I think in a time when retail, retail retailers are not doing so well, I knew that coming in. Like, I knew that, you know, this is going to be hard. You know, we have a physical retail uh, space, and um, I live online. You know, when it's a book, book is online, right? right? Yeah. And then going back to a physical space was kind of different for us. But we knew that CBD was so young in the infancy stages of the industry in that sense. The farm bill passed in uh, December of last year. Um, so we knew that coming in where we really wanted a human touch to our clients that come in the store. And the clients that come into our CBD store are usually the ones that know nothing about it and they want more information or the ones that have exhausted every pharmaceutical path and they want something more natural. Um, so with that being said, we wanted to be there with them physically. We wanted to talk to them. We wanted to understand if they're allergic to anything, what medications they're taking, how much they're taking. All that requires that human touch. So starting that store was a huge investment, but we knew it was the right thing to do. It's kind of the same thing with starting, you know, when it's the book at the beginning. It was like, I, or even in the whole foster care system, I just, I knew that was just the right thing to do, and we needed to have a store for that. Um, but given that, the whole process was very difficult, you know. Um, getting property insurance was very difficult because not a lot of insurance company wanted to underwrite a CBD store because we're still under the cannabis side, yeah. you know. Um, getting credit card processing was very hard. Um, we have credit card processing now, thank goodness, but it took us a very long time to get it because banks didn't want to underwrite credit credit card processing for CBD stores. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had one in, you know, right before we opened, we were all ready to go, and they dropped 60,000 accounts the day that we opened. So from there, I basically walked in every store on Greenwich uh, in that area, and I saw ATM machines everywhere, and I said, who gives you your ATM machines? I, I have no idea, you know? And I was just like, can I get in contact with your ATM machine provider? And I called them, and we lugged an ATM machine into the store. Oh, wow. And we painted it white, so it looks very seamless in the store, so uh-huh. it doesn't disrupt your you know, shopping experience. But we were cash only because of that for the first few months. And now, thank goodness, we have credit card. But So everything, learning to merchandise, I never knew how to do that. Yeah, learning to tell brand stories in a physical space. I learned all of that while doing Artemis. How yeah. come so much of CBD marketing seems to be targeted towards women? That's a great, great question. Um, I We're very, very lucky in a sense. We have a mentor, Dr. Janella Chin. We work very closely with her. We actually have a podcast with her as well. Um, and she shared with us that women tend to be overdiagnosed when it comes to anxiety and depression. Um, and a lot of women actually come to the store seeking for anxiety relief or stress relief more than anything else. Um, and for them, I think this is the most seamless path, you know. But given that... I think women are just, they face stress different and they process trauma different and they go through their days with all of that on their shoulders very different, mm-hmm. you know? And and I think that's probably where the over-medication comes in. And now I think women are much more active and taking control again over that particular path in their life. 
So on your blog, you said you thought you needed your parents to say they loved you for your healing to start, but then you realized that wasn't the case. How so? I think growing up and watching all these holiday movies, you know, and like, you know, the parents are always there and they're hugging them and Mm. everything. I grew up with this expectation of thinking in order for me to feel good about myself, I needed my parents to tell me how good I was. Mm -hmm. And growing up Asian, I think that that particular part of our culture is extremely strong and very powerful. We grew up seeking acknowledgement and seeking love from these two figures that also instill a lot of fear in us, you know. But given going through all of the foster care part and, you know, and really living without them for so long, I thought having them saying all that would make me feel worthy again. Mm -hmm. And seeing them, yeah, in December at my brother's wedding, I just felt like, I think that time has passed. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you wait for something for so yeah. long and it doesn't come, it just doesn't, it's not going to come. Yeah. Know? And even at my brother's wedding, they saw me. I was, I mean, I was right in front, you mm-hmm. know, officiating my brother and his wife. And they did not say anything to me at all. Like they mm-hmm. actually just kind of looked the opposite way more than anything else. But you know what I saw though? Growing up, these two figures in my life were very big. Mm-hmm. Physically, emotionally, intellectually and everything. Yeah. And because of that, in my mind, they looked big. They yeah. looked like right. these, you know, seven foot yeah. creatures, you know? Right. Like, and they just, they, they just felt very over, I felt very overwhelmed by that in, in its own, you know? But seeing them again, they didn't look very big. They mm-hmm. looked like people. They looked like humans. And mm-hmm. they, but seeing that, and you know, what was so miraculous was that when I was officiating, I was standing on a podium. So I, I actually was taller than them. Wow. And I've never, ever been taller yeah. than them in my whole life, you know? So because of that, mm. my, I think my, the visual recognition and the emotional connection that I had made me feel like I didn't, all the things I needed from them, it was just for me to feel that I needed approval for myself to feel that way about myself. Mm. And I need someone else to tell me that, you know. But seeing them, I think that part just broke, you know, and I felt free for the first time. Like I felt truly free and I didn't need any of that recognition or that approval more than anything else. We hope that Wendy's story gave you some inspiration for dealing with this crisis that we're in today. Remember, we're taking your questions on our hotline, 314-200-5947. We'll be back next week. Until then, you might take this downtime to go back and listen to more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. Today's version was produced by Trine Nuri with help from Beret Lamb. Our executive producer is Kateri Yoakum. I'm Veronica Dagger. Hang in there, Secrets listeners. You got this. Thanks for listening. <laughs>